In a minute, we're going to read this passage. And um, as we've been looking through Luke, we've been working our way through Luke. And one of the great things about working your way through a book of the Bible is you have to cover bits that you wouldn't necessarily want to cover. And I think the second half of our passage today is one of those passages. Um, And so um, as Penny reads it, let's be uh, focusing on that. And in Mark chapter 8, we saw at the beginning of that where Jesus is talking about the, the parable of the sower. He challenges us whether we're really listening. And he says, uh, my family are those who hear my words and put it into practice. So Jesus' followers become his family. They come close to him and they hear his words and they put it into practice. And the, the passages that continued after that, especially in Mark chap, uh, Luke chapter 9, are um, challenging us to see what Jesus' identity and his mission and his call on us is as uh, followers of him. And the call to us today is very challenging. So I'm going to pray, Penny's going to read, and then we're going to dive in. Father, please would you work in us by your Holy Spirit. Bring these words to life. May they have the impact that the Lord Jesus uh, intended them to have to their to, the, to his first hearers. I pray that uh, we would listen and we would know what it looks like in practice to actually do this. There's such challenging words we could almost go away and just think, well, that's not possible. Please show us what is right and good and please help us to be convinced that what Jesus calls us to here is fullness of life. In his name. Amen. Amen. Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 62. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to them, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Thanks very much, Penny. Um, I noticed there weren't any pens on the chairs, so if you're near a table and you want to pass around some pens and you want to take notes, what I'd love is if something strikes you as to how this might apply in practice, but you jot that down, you'll see if it helps you to concentrate, there's an outline of where I'm going um, on the inside of the service sheet, you can take notes there. If you find it easier to concentrate without taking notes, um, then please don't take notes. Um, While the pens go round, I'm going to tell you a story. Um, I think it comes from uh, American uh, TV series and movie called The Beverly Hillbillies. It's about a family that uh, lived in the deep country away from all modern technology 
I think in around the 50s, and they head to the big city. And mum and dad and two boys are there. Mum goes off shopping, and dad and the two sons drift, drift into a hotel. And they stare at the wall, and they see these shiny doors. And as they're looking at them, an ugly old lady, bent double, walks towards the lift. The doors open. In she goes. They have no idea. They've never seen one of these things before. Then the doors close. And the numbers change. One, two, three, four, five. Then five, four, three, two, one. And the doors open. And out walks this stunning, young, blonde, beautiful lady. And the father turns to his sons and goes... Go get your mother. <laughs> now, I partly told that just because it's a funny story, but also I, I just think as we get to know Jesus, sometimes we focus on the nice bits, the easy bits. And it's almost like this passage is a kind of reverse of that. The last time we open our Bibles, we see a Jesus of compassion and kindness, of gentleness. And indeed he is. He was, he was a friend of sinners, he was described. He was criticised for going to parties, of hanging out with the wrong kind of people, of loving them, of caring for them, of, of healing those who are in uh, d- dreadful situations. His compassion was amazing. It's just beautiful, wonderful. Surely Jesus would accept me in any way, for any reason, and yes, of course. We discovered that the entry into the kingdom of God, into to relationship with Jesus that will last for all eternity, is absolutely free. We can't pay for it ourselves. We could never be good enough for Jesus. But he came not for the righteous, not for the good people, but for sinners. For people like us. People who've pushed God out of the picture, who've ignored him, who've lived our lives our way. <coughs> who should... Just hear the voice of God saying to us, well, if you live that way, if you push me out of the picture, well, I'll give you what you ask for, which is life without me for all eternity. But instead, Jesus comes to rescue those people and to bring them back into a relationship with himself. And this this beautiful, wonderful, kind Jesus who gave his life for us. It's like we, we open our Bibles now, especially in the second half. I mean, he appears unreasonable, doesn't he? Unsympathetic. Just look at verse 60. Jesus says to this guy who says, Lord, I'll follow you, but just first let me bury my father. Jesus said to him, verse 60, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. (coughs) Verse 62, Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of God. And what's he talking about? He's talking about saying goodbye to your family. Unreasonable, unsympathetic. Now, before we try and deal with that, isn't this evidence in itself? I mean, if you're ever sceptical or you're talking to sceptical friends, just actually just take them here. Because although it's offensive, no one would make this up to get followers. It's pretty counterproductive. Someone comes to Jesus and says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, are you really sure? Do you want to do that? It's going to be horrible. He must be pretty confident that he's the real deal, that he is, as we've been seeing, the Messiah of God, the sent one 
who's been eternally with the Father. We saw a couple of weeks ago that there he was, transfigured on the mountain with the Father saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. This is the one promised throughout the Old Testament. This is the great eternal king. Jesus is so confident of that, that when people come to him and say, (coughs) I'll do whatever, Jesus says, you sure? You've got to count the cost. This is not a crutch for weak people. This is a call from the king himself. He's he's kind of like... It's it's like we could have called this talk, or I could have started this talk, and I've heard people who've done this say, my aim today is to convince you not to follow Jesus. Because that seems to be what Jesus' point is here. Unless we really understand who he is. And so there should kind of be two responses from these words of Jesus. There should be two responses. One is, stop following Jesus. Just just stop it. If you haven't really understood the call on your life, that he wants you to give up absolutely everything, then stop. Because you're not really following him, you're faking him. Or the other response should be to surrender absolutely everything to him. Every minute of every day, as Jesus described earlier in this chapter, he said, anyone who would come after me must take up their cross daily and follow me. And he wasn't speaking in metaphors because there was no metaphor in those days for taking up your cross. It just meant you went to be executed. You were going to die to yourself. Yourself is dead, Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me. Everything is mine now. And yet he called that gaining life. And so I called this talk, what is our vision statement? Shamelessly pursuing fullness of life in Christ, in Streatham. But actually one of my prayers as I was preparing for this is that it wouldn't just be in Streatham, that there might be one or two here today who decide, I can't stay in Streatham anymore. Because the Lord Jesus is pressing on me the desperate need of people across the world. Because the (laughs) poorest people in the world, on the whole, 85% of the poorest people in the world live in the areas where 95% of the least rich people live. And my prayer would be that it's not shamelessly pursuing fullness of life in Christ in Streatham only, but from Streatham, out into the nations and part of our vision statement is reaching unreached nations from Streatham maybe that's you maybe that's you well well, before we get into back into that real challenge in the second half let's try and understand the first half and I've put a title on your sheets our model Jesus heads home via the cross or Jesus' journey home via the cross. Jesus heads home via the cross. Verse 51, there on the sheets, top left, Luke 9, 51. Jesus said, oh, Luke writes, sorry. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, <coughs> Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. I, I think I've glossed over this many times. As the time approached for Jesus to be, I thought we were saying... Crucified and resurrected. No, it's the time approach for Jesus to be taken up to heaven. 
So Jesus' ultimate destiny is not his death and resurrection, although that is the very heart of why he came. But his ultimate destiny is home in heaven with his Father, to rule and reign for all eternity. And he's come from heaven, as we discovered at the beginning of Luke. He came, the eternal Son of God, reduced himself by adding something to himself, humanity. And he was born as an embryo, as a zygote, as a fertilised egg in the womb of his mother Mary and then born into this world, into poverty, to come and live the life that we fail to live. And in order to get back home to heaven and to bring people with him, he needs to go via Jerusalem. And so this is the turning point of Luke's Gospel. From this point on until the end of chapter 19, it's known by theologians as the travel narrative because at this point Jesus starts travelling, you see, resolutely towards Jerusalem. Literally in the original, he set his face towards Jerusalem. Nothing was going to stop him from heading in that direction. He set his face. That's where he was going. The striking thing is that in setting his face towards Jerusalem, do you remember in in chapter 9, earlier in chapter 9, Jesus said, I must go to suffer and to die and to rise, and whoever would come after me must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. Whoever wants to gain their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will gain it. And so that model of coming from heaven, heading to death, To rise again, to be ascended into heaven, is the same model for us. Just as Jesus gave his life, so as we trust in him, we die to ourselves. But then in also giving ourselves to him, we give up our independent lives. And our lives become a service to others, to share the good news. So that pattern of suffering now... And glory later was not just for Jesus, but it's for us. And you can't read through Luke's Gospel, you can't read through any of the Gospels and think that Jesus came to give us an easy life of health, wealth and prosperity now. He did not. And if you ever hear that, it's a lie. It's an absolute lie. It's a lie made to win followers. The fastest growing church across the world is the Prosperity Gospel Church and it's just based on that lie. If you, if you give yourself to Jesus, then he'll make you healthy, wealthy and happy and life easy now. And it's just not true. The model he sets for us here is he's heading for home <coughs> via the cross in Jerusalem. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 52. And Jesus sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? And you see in the little footnotes, like Elijah did. So some of the later manuscripts, I don't think it's in the original, but you know, obviously some scribes thought it would be helpful to put in here because that is what Elijah did. When people rejected him, 
he was able to call down fire. And the disciples think, well, Jesus is greater than Elijah, let's call down fire on these guys who reject him. But, verse 55, Jesus turned and rebuked him. Then he and his disciples went on to another village. So, I don't know if you're aware, but Samaria was pretty much the most hated land of the Jews. And yet it was kind of locked into Jewish territory, into the territory of of Judea and Galilee and so on. And so as Jesus is heading to Samaria, presumably to share the good news, the people of Samaria naturally hate a Jew coming in. But actually that's not the reason we're told that they didn't welcome him there. Do you see verse 53? The people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. Now that's in part because he was heading to the Jewish city. But also we know that that heading to Jerusalem, you can't read through chapter 9 without knowing that that heading to Jerusalem is heading to his suffering and his death. And what we start to see here is as soon as Jesus starts talking about the necessity of his death, then he gets rejected. And the implication is if we're with him on that, then people will hate the idea. Hate the idea that that God, rather than just accepting them as they are and saying, okay, well, it doesn't matter, you've got a few faults here and there, and do whatever you want, and we'll see you the other side. But God so hates that rebellion against him, that sin, that his perfect eternal son had to come and die. And it requires incredible humility to believe that. Humility to realise that I deserve nothing from God except for him to push me away into the rubbish dump of history. But if we do accept that, then we get amazing grace because we see that Jesus came to die for us and to rescue us and to bring us back into relationship with himself. But it won't make us popular and let's not think that it will. But it seems the disciples here have completely misunderstood the point, you see. They think, well, Jesus is greater than Elijah. We've just seen that on the mountain. When Elijah was there and the king, Isaiah, in 2 Kings chapter 1, sent people to come and arrest Elijah. Elijah was able to call on God and fire came down from heaven and consumed those soldiers. And so we're facing opposition here. Well, maybe we can do the same. That's what they're thinking. Now is the time for judgment. Let's show, this is the king, this is the Messiah, we're going to win. And we're going to win as we head into Jerusalem and we take control. And anyone who turns away from Jesus will get zapped. Let's call down fire from heaven. And Jesus immediately rebukes them. See, they don't, they don't get it. They don't realise that Jesus isn't coming to win. Jesus is coming to die and to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many, as he says later on. To rescue people. And so, today is a day of grace. We're living in extra time, as it were. Have you ever thought about time like this? Eternity past, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, together in perfect relationship, beauty itself. And the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, together as one God, create the world perfect world, a beautiful place where men and women dwell with him in perfect harmony and then Adam and Eve and us just like them push God out of the picture 
They take that fruit, which represents choosing for themselves what is right and wrong. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They choose for themselves what is good and evil. They follow the lie of of Satan, that they will be like gods, and so they set themselves up as alternative gods. And they have to leave the garden. They can't be in the presence of God if they're pushing him out. And so eternity is interrupted. Home is interrupted. And there's this period of, will God do what he said he was going to do? Which is, if you eat from that tree, you will surely die. And we know that's the pattern of this life. We're born and we die. We're born and we die. And death is the theme again and again. And we try and push it away in our prosperous Western culture. But it's a reality for all of us. And Jesus comes from home down to rescue us. And this is a time of grace. The very fact that we're alive shows that God is being patient and generous. And he wants people to turn to his son who gave his life for them. And to come back. And to head with him home. And so when we're frustrated that people aren't believing the message. Well of course we wouldn't. Probably because just because we're. We're westernised, we wouldn't go, let's call down fire from heaven. But we might be fed up with them, annoyed with them, cross with them, wanting to get one-upmanship on them, win the argument. But instead, we should remember that today is a day of grace. Today is the day for us to give our lives for them, to expect that kind of rejection. And it's amazing, isn't it? Jesus heads to Jerusalem, he dies, he rises, he ascends, he sends out his disciples... And after Jerusalem and Judea, where do they end up first? In Samaria, sharing the gospel. And many, probably of these very people who rejected him, are saved. Years later. What do you do when you're turned down, when people reject you for being a Christian, when they don't want to hear the message? Do you just give up on them? Or do you remember the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? And also when we think of us wanting to to zap people as it were, we need to remember that we've got no room for pride over anyone else. We've been rescued by the Lord Jesus Christ. We should have been zapped by God. And so we serve. So what are the marks of following Jesus? Well, we get these three examples here. And they are, I think, deliberately nameless. You notice that? We don't know who they are. Which means that it probably applies to anyone who would follow Jesus, almost certainly. I think that's why Luke has put these things here in his ordered account. To help us to see this is us and how will we respond to Jesus' questions. And we don't actually know their response. And so the response is left blank for us to kind of fill in the gaps. We're going to work through these three with these three Um, headings, I did a little bit of alliteration maybe to help you to remember it Um, but the first one's there and it's calling before comfort, calling before comfort verse 57 on your sheets as they were walking along the road a man said to him I will follow you wherever you go great guy you want him on your team don't you I mean, we'd love it if people coming to church, I've not not been a Christian before, but I'd love to come here and join you and follow Jesus. Do you think we'd reply like Jesus said in verse 58? 
Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Whenever the Bible uses the word calling, almost exclusively, if not entirely exclusively, there's some debate over one or two verses, but almost exclusively, and therefore I think the majority, is it's a call to follow Christ. Every single one of us is called to follow Christ. And the question is, have we responded to that call? I am no more called than you are, just because I'm standing up here preaching. It's my job, and my job is described as being there to equip you for works of ministry, to do the calling that you've received from the Lord Jesus Christ, which is to follow him and to live that out. And when we're called to follow Jesus, we are not called to comfort, are we? For this guy, it literally meant that he was going to have to give up any kind of certain home. Probably Jesus occasionally laid his head on a pillow. He probably stayed in the odd guest house and so on. doesn't mean that he literally always lived outside. But what it does mean is he didn't consider this life his home. He was always on the move, looking forward to his death and resurrection and his ascension. And he called others to have that same attitude. And what we see here is, is it's a bit like the entrance fee costs you nothing. We've seen that. Jesus came to call sinners, not the righteous. But the annual subscription costs you everything. Everything. We don't just give a little bit to Jesus. You know that um, time when you're packing the car to go on holiday? Have you ever done that? In um, our very traditional family, that uh, is the man's job. And so Lucy packs everything up, and then I look at the big things and, and the medium-sized things, and the big things go in first, and then the medium-sized things. And then if we've got kind of duvets or rugs or something like that, we sort of squeeze those in around the outside. And I think sometimes we think of the Christian life like that, don't we? I've got my job, I've got my mortgage payments, or my rent, I've got my family commitments, so on and so on, I've got my holidays, all these things, and then, oh, Jesus is like the duvet, it can fit around the sides. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 just take it all out, put me in, and I will define where everything should be. And if that big suitcase, as it were, of your job doesn't fit with following me, then off it goes. We we should go home and do an audit of all the things that we do. Big picture things, big picture plans. Does this help me to see that my home is in heaven, that my life now is in Christ, that I'm dead to myself and my own selfish plans, and that I'm now trusting in him? And so, does does this help me to witness to to others. Well, we'll move on to that. We'll see that in the next bit. Point two. Proclamation before parents. Proclamation before parents. You see verse 59. Jesus said to another man, follow me. It's great. Jesus is actually encouraging him to follow him. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Very reasonable request. 
Verse 60, Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. The calling to follow Jesus is also a calling to share the good news of Jesus. Jesus said to all his disciples, all those who would follow him, that when you trust in him, now your job is to join with the church and go and make disciples of all nations. (coughs) Proclamation before parents. But it seems so insensitive, doesn't it? I mean, my dad died on the 30th of August, 2010. And I started working as a church apprentice on the 1st of September, 2010. Now imagine if I called up Richard Perkins, my boss, the pastor of the church we were at in Ballum, where I was training, and said, um, really sad news, my, my dad's just died. Is it right if I take a couple of weeks off to be with the family and prepare for the funeral? And he said, verse 60, Hope, Alex, just let the dead bury their own dead. That's the spiritually dead, you know. They can do that. You come. Be of an apprentice and proclaim the kingdom of God. Can you believe this came out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the most loving man who ever lived? And I think it is supposed to be shocking. And we are supposed to go through the process of thinking through, well, what does that mean in practice? Does that mean Penny should cancel her trips up to Durham? For her dying father. I'm certainly not saying that it does mean that. But the point is, surely, that proclamation of the kingdom of God, sharing the good news about Jesus, matters more than your own father's funeral. More than duties to your family. And so as we go to pack the car, we don't shove that in and then fit Jesus around it. But rather we think... Jesus, I'm following you. How does this fit around giving up my life for you and for the gospel? We need to completely reevaluate our priorities, don't we? Even down to the very things that we think Jesus shouldn't even go near. I think this is probably the ultimate, isn't it? Burying your own father. It was probably the, one of the highest duties of people at the time. The Bible says a lot of positive things about family. And yet Jesus challenges even that to force us to think and prepare. Thirdly, focus before family. A little bit of trying to squeeze in the axe there. But I think focus actually is the point that helps us to understand this the best. Because verse 61, still another said... I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Another perfectly reasonable request. And Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Now, it's a very, very simple picture here. We we don't often see people pushing a one-man plough in a field. But just imagine a lawnmower or a tractor or, or even a car. If you're trying to go on a straight line forward, you can see the road ahead of you, and then you turn around like that, you're not going to be able to hold the line, are you? I mean, if you saw someone on the motorway who'd started driving like that, you just keep clear, slow down, pull over to to the the lay-by and just let them go past, because they're going to start veering all over the place and heading completely off course. 
Jesus is saying, if anything, even just saying goodbye to your family <coughs> stops you from focusing on what I have called you to. Deny self, take up your cross daily and follow me. Then ditch it. Somehow for this guy, even going back and saying goodbye to his family was going to cause him to turn around and swerve off course and stop following Jesus. We've got to be focused. And you know, this can be so subtle, can't it? I mean, if you get really practiced at it and you know the road in front of you, kind of, you can probably go for quite a long while doing that. But if you set ever so slightly off course, at some point it's going to go disastrously wrong. I was two at the time, but I was reminded of it because it's such big news that it lasted on into my childhood. Does anyone remember Flight 007? It's easy to remember because of James Bond, but sadly it's not as exciting. In 1983, Flight 007 took off from New York heading towards Seoul in South Korea. And it set its navigation as it went on autopilot. And after 12 miles, it was five miles off course, which isn't that far, that's very easily rectifiable. But then 10, then 20, then 60, then hundreds of miles off course, and as it went over the Soviet Union, they were doing missile tests. And they assumed it must be an American spy plane posing as an airliner, and up went the missile, and all 269 people on board were killed. Just a tiny little measure, of course. Initially, you don't even notice it. But over a lifetime, it can lead us completely away from Jesus and his priorities. And so where are we listening? Are we listening to Jesus and this challenge daily and reassessing daily? Lord, do you want me to do this today? What does it mean for me to take up my cross today? And what about that career? And what about those family priorities and my desire to to get married or to do this or my hopes for my children? We need to stop buying the lie (coughs) that what is best for us is what the devil is selling our culture. We need to stop buying the lie that what is best for us is what the devil is selling our culture. Our culture says, live for the now. Live for self-fulfillment. Make sure you're comfortable and happy now. But actually, as life goes on and we get those things, they never satisfy, do they? They never satisfy. And Jesus is saying, if you're literally homeless, if you never get to see your family again, if you don't even say goodbye but you follow me, and you trust me and you put me first in everything, then that is life in all its fullness. So why do it? Because of who he is. You've got to know who Jesus is. For some of us, this may force us to investigate again. Can Jesus really be who he said he is if he's saying this kind of thing? Or do I want him to be this kind of person? And we go back and we examine the evidence and we realise that he is who he said he is, that he proved it, that he's the great Messiah who demands everything from us. We also do it because he loves us. He gave his life for us and so surely he knows what is best for us. Now as I was preparing, I um, 
was reminded of a book I've read recently called um, Radical by David Platt. If you want an exciting read, get this book. If you want a book that will change your life and help you to focus on these principles and to think them through, and he gives lots of application, then get this book. I, I got it on audio, because I much prefer listening than reading, um, but you can get it um, Kindle or whatever you like. But I'm going to spoil a little bit of it, and I think probably one of the best bits, but it's still absolutely worth reading the whole thing, by reading you a letter that someone wrote to him as he was convicted as a pastor. I need to preach this kind of radical living that Jesus calls us to. And someone wrote to him, we're going to go over a little bit. Hopefully that's okay. I think this letter is gripping enough. So if you've fallen asleep, now time to wake up. I think this is a very helpful application. It's, it's a life changed. And a guy wrote to David Platt a letter of complaint. To David Platt and the church family of Brook Hills. I assume, based on what others have said about you and the faith family at Brook Hills, that's the name of his church, that you are accustomed to receiving complimentary letters. I hope that you will indulge me as I write to you from a different perspective. I don't bless your heart. My letter could be considered more of a complaint or a warning. It's intended to enlighten you as to how your radical actions and teachings related to the word have been destroying my life and probably the lives of others like me. Let me explain. I was raised unchurched by loving parents who were perfectly content with their lives. The worldly perspective I grew up with allowed me to see the hypocrisy in their lives. Uh, sorry, the hypocrisy in the lives of the few church-going families to which I had been exposed. Thus, I grew up into a worldly man and I found myself on the path to the American dream. This path, as far as I could see, did not go through or even near a church. I went to college and then to grad school, married a kind and beautiful woman, got a decent, respectable job, which allowed me to ultimately buy a house or at least make payments on a mortgage plan and make maximum contributions to a pension plan. My wife and I eventually had a family with two beautiful daughters and a couple of dogs. I was living the middle-class version of the American dream. Clearly this guy's from America. I was kind, decent family man who was grounded in the realities of this world. I was perfectly content to devote myself to working hard to provide the financial resources my family would need. Retirement plan, college savings plan, a general savings account and a vacation savings account. I also worked to provide the necessities of life such as a flat screen TV. I loved my family and loved spending time with them but I was constantly distracted by the financial realities and needs of our life. I looked to my balance statements for a sense of security, and like many good worldly men devoted to getting ahead in this world, I would find moments of joy when the quarterly share statements showed a profit, but I also experienced pronounced periods of stress and disappointment and anger when shares dropped or when we had to take money out of savings to pay the bills. However, I accepted these ups and downs as the realities of life, and overall we were doing okay. Then one day my wife, who I thought loved me, told me that she would like to raise our daughters in a church and requested that we start visiting local churches. Up to that point in my life, I'd done a good job of avoiding churches and the hypocritical Christians who attended them. I'd always felt uncomfortable around faith-professing Christians because I lacked biblical knowledge, and I assumed that they would look down on me. Now, in order to make my wife happy, I was going to have to attend a church and interact with those people on their turf. I reluctantly agreed and added church to the list of my dreaded weekend chores. <laughs> Initially, our trial run of visiting churches proved relatively painless. The people were nice, but the watered-down version of the word which they were serving had little impact and left me with no desire for more. My wife, who was also unimpressed by these experiences, suggests we try 
Brook Brook Hills because she had heard good things about this church. Well, if attending a regular church was bad, I'm sure that attending a big church like this would be worse. However, as usual, my wife convinced me and we attended your church for the first time last autumn. That day was the start of a process in which you and your faith family have been progressively destroying my life in this world. The word you served up that day was strong and pure, not like the watered-down versions I'd received in the past. It had an amazing impact on me, immediate impact on me, and like the most addictive drugs, left me wanting more. We started attending fairly regularly on Sundays, but soon that was not enough to satisfy my growth need for more of this word. I started buying CDs and MP3s of previous sermons so that I could get my fix on the way to and from work each day. I started to interact more with members of this faith family who were not only consuming the word but also appeared to be living it as well. This only fueled my desire for more. You and this faith family seemed all too happy to encourage and support my habits. As I got deeper and deeper into this addiction, a side effect known as faith began to grow inside of me. And as my faith grew, I felt a greater need for fellowship with others suffering with the same faith. All along, I was gradually losing my grips on the realities of this world, which had been my foundation, and I came to Christ. I cannot believe what the word in this growing faith has done in my life over the last year. I used to avoid church altogether. Now we attend corporate worship services on a Sunday. I've joined a small group which meets three to five hours each week at a neighbour's house. I attend a class on how to study the Bible and have recently joined a men's accountability small group. I used to avoid Christians who profess their faith and now I've become one. I stopped saving for the flat screen TV, which is just as well since I don't have much time for TV anymore. I've reduced my savings contributions and stopped looking at the quarterly statements. I've gone from trying to save as much money as I could to trying to give them money away for the glory of Christ. What is wrong with me? It's lunacy. What have you done to me? The worldly man I was a year ago would not recognize the man I am becoming. I was a man believing in the realities of this world, living the American dream, saving up riches for a comfortable future and looking for security in a strong bottom line. And now I believe in and pray to and seek a relationship with a God I cannot see. I find salvation in Christ, whom I cannot see. I long for an eternity in an unseen future creation, and I now look for security in my faith. All this would have sounded like foolishness to the man I was a year ago. However, that man I was a year ago and the worldly life I knew are being destroyed. This has had... has obviously had an impact on me, but it's also impacted my family, whom I now pray with daily. I wanted you and the faith family at Brook Hills to be aware of the role you have played in destroying my worldly life. And I also feel the need to warn you that if you persist in teaching and living out the word as you are currently doing, then you will likely have a similar impact on the worldly lives of others like me. I hope you realise that you may have to live with the knowledge of your actions and their effects on the lives of others for all eternity, and I will be there to remind you of what you have done. (laughs) fantastic. (laughs) The cost of discipleship is great. The cost of non-discipleship is far, far greater. Not just for us, but for the lost and for the poor who are scattered across this world. And the Lord Jesus calls us to come and die and to destroy our lives as we would have planned them out and to let him replan them for us. And it doesn't matter whether you're a brand new Christian or you're a pastor of a church, this smacks you in the face. And if you don't let it smack you in the face every single day, then you don't know what it means to follow Jesus. But there is not a single person who is living this kind of destroyed life, who isn't delighting 
in the Lord Jesus Christ and experience life in all its fullness. It hurts. It really hurts. It hurts when you go out there and you try and share the gospel and you get nothing. And, you, and yet you get throughout the Bible, you get even the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary there ever was, in his last ever letter, writing from prison, everyone in the province of Asia has deserted He didn't get to feel that life to the full. It wasn't an amazing experience for him. It was awful most of the time. But he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he looked forward to his heavenly home. Because he knew that he had died with the Lord Jesus Christ. And given himself for the one who gave him greater joy than any worldly experience could ever give us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we would love to be able to explain away these words. We'd love to find ways around taking them at face value. And although their application will look different for each of us, please would we not avoid the reality of what it means to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow you. But please don't let us do this out of a kind of desire to impress you or to somehow get brownie points with you. Please help us to realise that you have done everything necessary to bring us directly into the presence of our Heavenly Father and to come to him as his little children and to ask him for good gifts. We don't need to earn anything. We pray that we would give everything for you and your cause. In your name. Amen. I think what would be good here is rather than chat about this because we'll come up with something trite. I want us to, to, to talk about this through the week and to be challenging each other. We're, part of our vision statement is an intimate family, an interdependent body, speaking the truth in love, taking this capital T truth and, and speaking it into each other's lives. But for now, I think I just want you to imagine that the Lord Jesus Christ is sitting on that seat. And he has just spoken to you and he's told you that he is more important than your comfort than your parents and your whole family. And in your own hands, in your own minds, take a moment of quiet and and talk to him about how you feel. And ask him to show you what this looks like in practice. I'm going to help those who are on set up and get some teas and coffees ready. um, Unless you're part of that, why don't you just take a moment to talk to Jesus and then we'll break the silence and... Thank you.